We are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of truth, free speech, open debate, and historical accuracy in the Biden administration and under the control of the CIA. We're not. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So how are you doing today, Rod? A little better, can't complain, Lee. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good, but we got a very special episode, so I'm going to put everybody on notice right now. Not only do you want to listen to this first half hour, but you might want to get a notepad or some way of taking notes. Do you agree people should take notes during this, Rod? Yeah, especially mental notes, so uh, we can, you know, beat against the human drones who uh, have hit some program hatred for Russia. But let me tell you what's coming. This half hour, I'm going to play John F. Kennedy's peace speech, the the speech that he gave at American University on June 10th, 1963, four months before I believe the CIA killed Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was killed by the CIA. Deal with that. Deal with that. And when you listen to his speech, you're going to see why they killed him. You're going to see 100% why. Now, this peace speech, you may have heard it before, but right now, on a day when the Democrats repudiated their own letter calling for negotiation with Russia, a speech that attacked Russia as it urged negotiation. You saw that. The Democrats repudiated it. Right, Rod? Yeah, you know, um, I, I kind of figured that was going to happen, Lee, but, you know, it's sad to see, but it's not uh, unexpected from these uh, coward Democrats, oh, coward politicians, let me not, just bipartisan cowards. Now, let me tell you who's on the show. We have the great court, Sputnik correspondent, Wyatt Reed, with us this first half hour. Is Wyatt in Europe currently, Rod? Wyatt is in France. Okay, that's what I thought. It's hard to track him. You know, Wyatt gets around. I'm just like saying. Carmen Sandiego. Got to, you know, got to figure out where he is. It's indeed. But Wyatt reads on the first hour. In the second hour, our great friend, Ted Rawl, who lives, he's not in France, but he is French. And he's on an island off the coast of the United States. So that's Ted Rawl. And the point of me playing this in the first half hour is I'm going to take your calls on it. I'll show 202-521-1320. Rod, what's the name of the show? You listen to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Now, I had this idea last night. And uh, so I grabbed uh, the peace speech. This is a speech that John F. Kennedy gave at American University, sorry, American University on June 10th, 1963. And they killed him four months later. And you're going to hear, if you've not heard this speech, you need to hear it. If you want to know why Kennedy was killed, you're going to hear why. And the same people who killed him, the same CIA that killed our president, that killed Kennedy in broad daylight, also is pitching and starting this war. Is there any doubt that the CIA is behind this conflict with Russia and Ukraine and the CIA overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014? We know that, right, Rod? There's no conjecture there. We know that, right? 
No, not at all, Lee. And more people, you know, I know uh, Mark Sloboda is uh, cynical on this, but more people are uh, here in America waking up to that. And uh, we'll play a clip later with uh, Wyatt. You're, uh, <clears throat> there's a uh, Elizabeth Warren gets confronted, and uh, there's a, a gentleman who was about to say what you what you just said, but he gets cut off. You know, talking about when in 2014 in Ukraine and things like that. So more people are waking up to the facts of this. And given given that Elizabeth Warren is a senator from Massachusetts, she has Kennedy's old seat, right? She has JFK's old seat. That's true. This is such a betrayal to JFK. And I want you to note all throughout this speech how many things have changed, how many things JFK said that he wouldn't have said, he wouldn't have been able to say today. By the way, this speech airing on Sputnik makes perfect sense. And part of the reason I want to play it, if you're around the Washington, D.C. area and listening to us on AM 1390 or 105.5 FM, roll down your windows and crank it up. I'm hoping that someone from Langley or someone from that part of Northern Virginia happens to be monitoring the channel and listens and take this speech to heart. Take it to your heart. Do you want to be responsible, you people down in Langley, for killing millions of people? Do you want to be responsible for nuclear war that will cause nuclear death to children, to, to children who did nothing? Does that weigh on any of you? Does that weigh on you, what you're up against? And I think what's happened, Rod, is a lot of people, and I'll admit, guilty as charged. It's easy to nuclear war. The possibilities are so horrible. That's easy to forget about it and normalize it. Does that make sense, Rod? Um, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying, Lee, but I look at it as, you know, you look to your left, you look to your right, you know, as far as family members or, you know, look to your children and you just say goodbye because nobody's going to be around. You know what I'm saying? Nobody's going to be around. And if you are going to be around, it's going to be a wasteland. Well, my friend Vivian Kubrick, whose father was Stanley Kubrick, who, of course, directed Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Love the Bomb. She's told me that that uh, movie was based on a book called Failsafe. It was a serious book. And if you've seen Dr. Strangelove, it's a dark comedy. And the reason Kubrick had to make it a dark comedy is because the subject matter was so horrible to think about that that wouldn't have made a good movie. You know, it, it would have been so dark that it would have been unwatchable. So he chose to make it a dark comedy. And, of course, Peter Sellers was brilliant in that film. But when Stanley Kubrick so can't deal with the reality of war, that's saying something. And so I think a lot of people, I understand it. It's hard for us to deal with the reality of war. But this is a speech where Kennedy was clearly thinking about the reality of nuclear war. And count how many things JFK says in this speech, given four months before he was assassinated, in cold blood, in a in an operation that involved the CIA, think about how many things JFK says in the speech he would never be able to say today. And Elizabeth Warren, listen up and hang your head in shame. We have lost so much. The CIA took so much from us on November 63. And I want you to hear that. 
So let's play the speech now. Hit it. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied Air Forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn. Today, the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need them is essential to the keeping of peace. But surely the acquisition of such idle stockpiles, which can only destroy and never create, is not the only, much less the most efficient, means of assuring peace. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary, rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace, or world law, or world disarmament, and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. I hope they do. I believe we can help them do it. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitudes as individuals and as a nation. For our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace, towards the Soviet Union, towards the course of the Cold War, and towards freedom and peace here at home. First, examine our attitude towards peace itself, 
Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. I am not referring to the absolute, infinite concept of universal peace and goodwill of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite discouragement and incredulity by making that our only and immediate goal. Let us focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace, based not on a sudden revolution in human nature, but on a gradual evolution in human institutions, on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements, which are in the interests of all concerned. There is no single simple key to this peace, no grand or magic formula to be adopted by one or two powers. Genuine peace must be the product of many nations, the sum of many acts. It must be dynamic, not static, changing to meet the challenge of each new generation. For peace is a process, a way of solving problems. With such a peace, there will still be quarrels and conflicting interests, as there are within families and nations. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbor. It requires only that they live together in mutual tolerance, submitting their disputes to a just and peaceful settlement. And history teaches us that enmities between nations, as between individuals, do not last forever. However fixed our likes and dislikes may seem, the tide of time and events will often bring surprising changes in the relations between nations and neighbors. So let us persevere. Peace need not be impractical, and war need not be inevitable. By defining our goal more clearly, by making it seem more manageable and less remote, we can help all people to see it, to draw hope from it, and to move irresistibly towards it. And second, let us re-examine re our attitude towards the Soviet Union. It is discouraging to think that their leaders may actually believe what their propagandists write. It is discouraging to read a recent authoritative Soviet text on military strategy and find on page after page wholly baseless and incredible claims such as the allegation that American imperialist circles are preparing to unleash different types of war, that there is a very real threat of a preventative war being unleashed by American imperialists against the Soviet Union, and that the political aims, and I quote, of the American imperialists are to enslave economically and politically 
the European and other capitalist countries and to achieve world domination by means of aggressive war, unquote. Truly, as it was written long ago, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Yet it is sad to read these Soviet statements to realize the extent of the gulf between us. But it is also a warning, a warning to the American people not to fall into the same trap as the Soviets, not to see only a distorted and desperate view of the other side, not to see conflict as inevitable, accommodation as impossible, and communication as nothing more than an exchange of threats. No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war, almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. And even in the Cold War, which brings burdens and dangers to so many countries, including this nation's closest allies, our two countries bear the heaviest burdens. For we are both devoting massive sums of money to weapons that could be better devoted to combat ignorance, poverty, and disease. We are both caught up in a vicious and dangerous cycle with suspicion on one side breeding suspicion on the other and new weapons begetting counter weapons. In short, both the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union and its allies have a mutually deep interest in a just and genuine peace and in holding the arms race. Agreements to this end are in the interests of the Soviet Union as well as ours and even the most hostile nations can be relied upon to accept and keep those treaty obligations and only those treaty obligations which are in their own interest. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link 
airs that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. Third, let us re-examine our attitude towards the Cold War. Remembering we're not engaged in a debate, seeking to pile up debating points. We are not here distributing blame or pointing the finger of judgment. We must deal with the world as it is, and not as it might have been, had the history of the last 18 years been different. We must therefore persevere in the search for peace in the hope that constructive changes within the communist bloc might bring within reach solutions which now seem beyond us. We must conduct our affairs in such a way that it becomes in the communist interest to agree on a genuine peace. And above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. To secure these ends, America's weapons are non-provocative, carefully controlled, designed to deter, and capable of selective use. Our military forces are committed to peace and disciplined in self-restraint. Our diplomats are instructed to avoid unnecessary irritants and purely rhetorical hostility. For we can seek a relaxation of tensions without relaxing our guard. And for our part, we do not need to use threats to prove we are resolute. We do not need to jam foreign broadcasts out of fear our faith will be eroded. We are unwilling to impose our system on any unwilling people, but we are willing and able to engage in peaceful competition with any people on earth. Meanwhile, we seek to strengthen the United Nations to help solve its financial problems, to make it a more effective instrument for peace, to develop it into a genuine world security system, a system capable of resolving disputes on the basis of law, of ensuring the security of the large and the small, and of creating conditions under which arms can finally be abolished. At the same time, we seek to keep peace inside the non-communist world, where many nations, all of them our friends, are divided over issues which weaken Western unity, which invite communist intervention, or which threaten to erupt into war. Our efforts in West New Guinea, in the Congo, in the Middle East, and the Indian subcontinent have been persistent and patient, despite criticism from both sides. We have also tried to set an example for others by seeking to adjust small but significant differences with our own closest neighbors in Mexico and Canada. Speaking of other nations, I wish to make one point clear. We are bound to many nations by alliances. These alliances exist because our concern and theirs substantially overlap. Our commitment to defend Western Europe and West Berlin, for example, stands undiminished because of the identity of our vital interests. 
The United States will make no deal with the Soviet Union at the expense of other nations and other peoples, not merely because they are our partners, but also because their interests and ours converge. Our interests converge, however, not only in defending the frontiers of freedom, but in pursuing the paths of peace. It is our hope and the purpose of Allied policy to convince the Soviet Union that she too should let each nation choose its own future, so long as that choice does not interfere with the choices of others. The communists drive to impose their political and economic system on others is the primary cause of world tension today. For there can be no doubt that if all nations could refrain from interfering in the self-determination of others, the peace would be much more assured. This will require a new effort to achieve world law, a new context for world discussions. It will require increased understanding between the Soviets and ourselves. An increased understanding will require increased contact and communication. One step in this direction is the proposed arrangement for a direct line between Moscow and Washington to avoid on each side the dangerous delays, misunderstandings, and misreadings of others' actions which might occur at a time of crisis. We have also been talking in Geneva about our first step measures of arms controls designed to limit the intensity of the arms race and reduce the risk of accidental war. Our primary long-range interest in Geneva, however, is general and complete disarmament, designed to take place by stages, permitting parallel political developments to build the new institutions of peace which would take the place of arms. The pursuit of disarmament has been an effort of this government since the 1920s. It has been urgently sought by the past three administrations. And however dim the prospects are today, we intend to continue this effort, to continue it in order that all countries, including our own, can better grasp what the problems and the possibilities of disarmament are. The only major area of these negotiations where the end is in sight, yet where a fresh start is badly needed, is in a treaty to outlaw nuclear tests. The conclusion of such a treaty, so near and yet so far, would check the spiraling arms race in one of its most dangerous areas. It would place the nuclear powers in a position to deal more effectively with one of the greatest hazards which man faces in 1963, the further spread of nuclear arms. It would increase our security, it would decrease the prospects of war. Surely this goal is sufficiently important to require our steady pursuit, yielding neither to the temptation to give up the whole effort, nor the temptation to give up our insistence on vital and responsible safeguards. I'm taking this opportunity, therefore, to announce two important decisions in this regard. First, Chairman Khrushchev, Prime Minister McMillan and I have agreed that high-level discussions will shortly begin in Moscow, looking towards early agreement on a comprehensive test ban treaty. Our hope must be tempered 
Our hopes must be tempered with the caution of history, but with our hopes go the hopes of all mankind. Second, to make clear our good faith and solemn convictions on this matter, I now declare that the United States does not propose to conduct nuclear tests in the atmosphere so long as other states do not do so. We will not We will not be the first to resume. Such a declaration is no substitute for a formal binding treaty, but I hope it will help us achieve one. Nor would such a treaty be a substitute for disarmament, but I hope it will help us achieve it. Finally, my fellow Americans, let us examine our attitude towards peace and freedom here at home. The quality and spirit of our own society must justify and support our efforts abroad. We must show it in the dedication of our own lives. As many of you who are graduating today will have an opportunity to do by serving without pay in the Peace Corps abroad or in the proposed National Service Corps here at home. But wherever we are, we must all in our daily lives live up to the age-old faith that peace and freedom walk together. In too many of our cities today, the peace is not secure because freedom is incomplete. It is the responsibility of the executive branch at all levels of government, local, state, and national, to provide and protect that freedom for all of our citizens by all means within our authority. It is the responsibility of the legislative branch at all levels wherever the authority is not now adequate to make it adequate. And it is the responsibility of all citizens in all sections of this country to respect the rights of others and respect the law of the land. All this. All this is not unrelated to world peace. When a man's way please the Lord, the scriptures tell us, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. And is not peace in the last analysis basically a matter of human rights, the right to live out our lives without fear of devastation, the right to breathe air as nature provided it, the right of future generations to a healthy existence, while we proceed to safeguard our national interests, let us also safeguard human interests. And the elimination of war and arms is clearly in the interests of both. No treaty, however much it may be to the advantage of all, however tightly it may be worded, can provide absolute security against the risks of deception and evasion. But it can, if it is sufficiently effective, in its enforcement, and it is sufficiently in the interest of its signers, offer far more security and far fewer risks than an unabated, uncontrolled, unpredictable arms race. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough 
more than enough of war and hate and oppression. We shall be prepared if others wish it. We shall be alert to try to stop it. But we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task or hopeless of its success. Confident and unafraid, we must labor on not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace. There you go. You heard John F. Kennedy say, quite sincerely, the U.S. will never start a war. And I believe him. And they killed him four months later. And then they proceeded to do just that. We've seen over and over again. It also jumped out at me, this, the Soviet propagandists that he decried were right when they said the U.S., will eventually uh, pursue a path of overtaking, trying to dominate the world economically and through military means. We have lost so much. The CIA took so much from us and continue to. And when we come back from a short break, we'll talk to Wyatt Reed, our great correspondent from Sputnik, here on The Backstory. Blasting out the truth on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. The empire of lies became, for one brief shining moment, the empire of truth by John F. Kennedy. So take that, Langley. Joining us now is the great Sputnik, and he's brave as well. I, I promise I'd say that, but because I think it. Wyatt Reed. Sputnik correspondent Wyatt Reed joins us from France. Hey, Wyatt, how you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm trying to keep it as myself as brave and uh, great as as you have uh, just set me out to be. It's a wonderful thing for you to say to me. It's always great to be back on the program, Lee. Well, brave and great people seldom think that of, of themselves, so I don't mind sharing it. I, I really do mean it because, as we talked about before, you were nearly killed by a missile recently. Right. Yeah. Well, we got into it. I guess technically it is a it is, shell. It was a missile. It was a missile in the sense that it was launched. You know, uh, flying objects yes. exploded. Um, yeah, I was very nearly taken out by Kiev regime forces using a NATO standard uh, U.S. provided shell. So um, he's still here. Ain't, ain't got rid of me yet. Now we just did something. I consider myself very lucky to have this job and to work for Sputnik Radio because they provide me with a form to prevent, present the truth and to present something like JFK's peace speech from June 1963, its entirety, which we just did, Wyatt. And one thing that jumped out at me is that Kennedy in that speech said, don't have a distorted view of your enemy. Have you ever seen a conflict, in, and you've seen some conflicts, have you ever seen a conflict in what, su- such 
a distorted view of the United States adversary was presented consistently. I mean, they not only lie about Russia, but they want to bury everything about it. Culturally, they're banned music. They banned ballet. Am I right? Yeah, you're totally on point. I mean, Amazon even recently banned the writings of Russian philosopher Alexander Dugan. This is the same Amazon that is currently fighting in court to be able to provide and sell uh, what is called suicide kits that have already killed multiple children. This 95 plus percent sodium nitrate, lab grade sodium nitrate with no other household uses, unlike things like knives and rope. Uh, they're in court right now defending them, their right to sell this stuff to children, to sell it and package it algorithmically alongside suicide books and other chemicals to make sure you don't throw up. That's what they're selling. They're selling things that will kill people. But, uh, you know, apparently a little bit of uh, suggestion prodding from the Department of Treasury, they're getting rid of the books of, of Alexander Dugan, who, you know, his apparent crime is spreading misinformation. Uh, so we don't have freedom of speech anymore. We don't have any of these real rights. Uh, all of this stuff has gone out the window. I've never seen a conflict just so utterly one-sided. All of the news uh, is constantly reported as though you would just take it for a given that Ukraine is wonderful and democratic and peaceful. Russia is evil, authoritarian. They don't want peace. Uh, the opposite is true, obviously. We know that. Uh, your listeners know that. Unfortunately, more Americans do not know that, and those few who do suggest peace are immediately silenced. And uh, let's talk about the clip you put on your Twitter timeline. By the way, you have a great Twitter timeline. Tell people how they can find you on Twitter, Wyatt. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at WyattReed13. You have to type it in directly because I am shadow banned like you, Lee. Um, my tweets are now hidden because I've been labeled Russia state-affiliated media. It's a extremely political label that big tech places on us that they don't put on state-affiliated media like the BBC or PBS or Voice of America. Uh, but you're, it's hidden from you. So if you want to find me on Twitter, you have to type in my handle directly and go straight to my page. It's at WyattReed13, W-Y-A-T-T-R-E-E-D-1-3. And you need to watch out for Russian state affiliated media because they might play a JFK speech in its entirety. You know, that's dangerous, Wyatt. That's what we do here. So this is people confronting the new senator, Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat. And in in think how sickening it is that Elizabeth Warren is basically filling JFK's seat in the Senate. Is that right, Wyatt? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it just shows you how far we've fallen. Uh, this this tweet you're referring to shows a number of anti-war activists, protesters, despite what uh, political figures like AOC may want to call them. She, she recently was uh, disrupted herself by some of these activists. And she put out a lengthy statement, never addressed any of their questions, uh, but she put out a lengthy statement saying they weren't real anti-war protests, protesters, because they weren't real leftists. I guess you have to be a leftist now to be against war, according to them. But this uh, clip that you're referring to, um, it's pretty important. It shows basically the 
the utter contempt that they hold normal uh, Americans in who want to seek a peaceful resolution to the hostilities in Ukraine, who don't want to see nuclear war. Um, they try to basically shut down this man. Uh, they, he is surrounded immediately and just uh, he's harassed and pestered. At one point, they say, well, you're trying to speak over black and brown people. And he says, I am black and brown people. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. He's basically shepherded off and 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 harangued and harassed and moved away from the stage for saying, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter if we cancel student debt because nuclear war will cancel your life. Um, and they'd never address this point. Instead, they sit and they they whisper to each other. Um, it's 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 her, Liz Warren. I think Ayanna Presley is up there, too. Uh, a number of politicians, the so-called squad. People have been calling them the fraud squad recently, and, and I tend to agree. Um, instead of, you know, addressing any of these concerns, they just laugh. They hold him very, you know, very much in contempt. Uh, they chuckle. They roll their eyes. This is kind of the attitude they have towards Americans who don't want us to descend into this never-ending uh, near-nuclear conflict with Russia well, at this point. Well, well, uh, it's let's, disgusting. Let's have listen to that clip, actually. We have the clip. So on this day, when we played the entire peace speech from JFK, listen by contrast to how much we've lost and what the state of democratic politics in Massachusetts is today. Let's play the Elizabeth Warren clip. Please hit it. Senator, you have got to stop funding Nazi-infested Ukrainian regimes. You are bringing us to the brink of nuclear war. You have got those billions could be used for a lot of good things here in the U.S. Instead of funding Nazis in Ukraine, they're preparing a dirty bomb to detonate and blame on Russia. This is why we're here. I am here to make sure that billions of lives are saved instead of getting into a nuclear war. You've asked me, I heard you. I will move toward the This is not No. This is not Yes, I'm black and brown too. So let them get the information. And I don't want them to die in a nuclear war. My tax money is funding because the Congress and the Senate are funding Nazis in Ukraine. Do you want a nuclear war? A nuclear war will cancel your debt and your life. I have sent letters, I have sent emails, I have made calls. To these senators and congressmen, they refuse to respond. We are marching to nuclear war behind fools in political office. They have got to stop it. Thank you. Nuclear war is the issue. Nuclear war. Consideration. None of this matters. None of this matters if there's a nuclear war and we all die. In 2018, there was a legal. Now, Incredible. I'll tell you why. One of the things that bothers me is the people trying to shout that guy down, the people in the audience. No guards with guns made those people try to shout him down. 
is a, a, a matter of them accepting nuclear war and accepting tyranny. What do you think, Wyatt? Well, not just accepting it, but cheering it on, cheering it on. They are actively cheering for more violence, for more war, for more weapons, for Zelensky and his little crew of banderites. They don't want peace. That's that's become perfectly obvious now. They you know, we saw what happened with the 30 so-called progressive Congress members who wrote the world's most milk toast open letter basically saying, hey, could we please consider also diplomacy since we're going to send God knows how many billions more in weapons to these people? And then they retracted it less than 24 hours after having written it. And, uh, you know, to me, it's just everyone in the Democratic Party at this point is just in lockstep. And anyone who steps out is immediately forced to backtrack and basically say they're sorry for ever having thought those, those uh, abominable thoughts in the first place. It's really horrifying. It's really disgusting. It's uh, a total betrayal of the legacy of, of you know, uh, dear President John F. Kennedy, the man who basically gave his life for peace, a man who was wanting to pursue peaceful relations with countries, including Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, wanting to basically end colonialism in Africa and Southeast Asia. And his reward was a bullet in the brain and multiple other, uh, you know, presumably other bullets, unless you, uh, you know, if you subscribe to the magic bullet theory, then perhaps not. Uh, but this, you know, this situation has just gotten, uh, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's, it's horrifying, really. Well, also, let me point out that the, the thing you don't see at all nowadays, nowhere near it, you can't even get people to oppose this war. What Kennedy was talking about in that speech is not just opposing one particular war, but is there any Democrat who's willing to stand up for the process of uh, pursuing foreign policy based on peace? You know, you see what I'm saying? It's not about one particular war. Kennedy was arguing for peace in general, and that's completely gone from today's dialogue. Do you agree, Wyatt? Totally. And, you know, I'm somebody who has considered myself more of a socialist for a long time. And, you know, I for a long time thought that I had something in common with these Democrats, the, the, the squad. I, I, I thought even on some level fairly recently, even in the past few years, that well, maybe they're just being, you know, strategic and tactical or something like that. The reality is, is no, that's not the case. And as much as it pains me to admit it, you really have to turn to the Republicans if you want to hear any type of common sense about this conflict. Uh, you know, it's it's you have to turn to people uh, like like Joe, uh, like Thomas Massey. Um, you have to turn to people who basically are considered to be the rightmost members of Congress. And these are the only people who are willing to take a stand against this endless war uh, in Ukraine. That's, that's what they want, because, you know, in private, you can read this even in articles from The Washington Post. You can, you can find out that privately, the Biden administration knows that Ukraine will not win this war. 
Uh, and yet they continue to insist on funding them anyway and shutting down any efforts at peace. And, you know, I saw a great tweet from Thomas Massey today. He said, if 30 well-established members of Congress aren't permitted to issue a tactfully worded call for diplomatic resolution to war, how much latitude do you think they have to vote their conscience on consequential legislation? This retraction of that letter that I was referring to gives a glimpse into the real Washington. And they tried to walk it back. They tried to say, oh, this was uh, our staff putting out a letter that we actually wrote months ago. Um, and uh, but, you know, as as Massey notes on Twitter, staff do not mistakenly collect signatures of 30 members of Congress. He said if 30 members together feeling safety in their numbers were compelled by forces in D.C. to take down their words, imagine the pressure that any one alone is under. And this is the problem, because peace is not an unpopular concept. We have polls that now show from data progress polling, it shows 57% approval for negotiations to end the war, even if it means compromise with Russia. There is 59% of the American public that agrees that the U.S. has a leading role to play in such negotiations. And yet, even with this popular mandate behind it, they are so spineless, they are such cowards that they are not willing to make even the most modest motion towards peace. It's, it's despicable. Now, the, the other thing that occurred to me while listening to JFK was how much the CIA has taken over. They killed him four months later. And ever since then, the CIA has gradually been taking over our government. Do you have any doubt that the, isn't it 100% factually clear that the CIA was behind what we're seeing in Ukraine? The CIA was well, behind the 2014. Go ahead, Ryan. The CIA has been funding Nazis in Ukraine since 1948. They have been funding the most ultra-right factions of the Ukrainian opposition diaspora they were peppering them in and, and even flying them in and dropping them with parachutes into Ukraine uh, for decades afterwards. They have been sponsoring the the now we call them the, the Democratic, you know, Ukrainians. Uh, they have been sponsoring these people for most of most Americans lifetimes. And that's because they, they you know, the stated cause was we're going to take down communism. We're going to use these guys. These banderites, these members of the Ukrainian insurgent army, the UPA, these guys that slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles. And by the way, uh, you weren't allowed to teach that in, in Ukraine anymore. Since 2014, uh, I spoke with some teachers in Rubizhnoya, a city in uh, the Lugansk People's Republic that's very close to Severodonetsk. Uh, and they told me that they were forced since 2014 to teach Holocaust revisionism, to teach Holocaust denial. But they were forced to teach Holocaust denialism. And this, I think, shows the other thing I'd like to point out. It's at the time, 1963, that speech was criticized by people like Goldwater and Dirksen, top Senate Republicans. But now, like Wyatt said, much to his shock, the people Supporting peace are people like Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, and Tucker Carlson, 
although he didn't say that. But I believe that White would agree with me. I'm, I'm still here, Lee. If y'all can hear me, I'm still here. White, do you agree with Tucker Carlson, a person undoubtedly on the right, is one of the leading advocates for peace today, and really the only mainstream journalist saying what he's saying about it. He's the only one. He's the only one who will stand up for the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. And, you know, five years ago, I hated Tucker Carlson. I thought he was just the most despicable guy. And now he's the only one who will tell the truth. I, I am just grateful that there is somebody you know, out there. And I really have kind of come around on on this guy in the sense that, well, you know, it doesn't really some of his views I may still object to in many ways. But really, at the end of the day, as these protesters in this clip we played, it doesn't matter if we all die in a nuclear holocaust. Let's let's sort out those other disagreements that we may have. The number one issue of our times, not just today, not just tomorrow, but of, of this decade is what's happening in Ukraine. And if people are willing to look past their disagreements with me on things like immigration, I am happy to do the same in the interest of averting a nuclear Armageddon. And that's why we believe in free speech on this show. And, you know, that's why we try to practice peaceful means. You know, I'm not a socialist. I'm a capitalist. But you and I can talk, and there's no fisticuffs. We're not threatening each other. There's mutual respect, and uh, that's the way people need to deal with one another. And how ironic is it that people like Kennedy, who was a hero in World War II, I mean, straight up, what he dealt with on PT-109, he was a hero. And people like Smedley Butler, the most decorated Marine in the history, was an anti-war and today, veteran Tulsi Gabbard is one of the few voices. Have you noticed why, how often these people who served in the military are the most fierce advocates for peace because they know the horrors of war? You notice that? Well, I'm from a military family, Lee. You know, all my, on my dad's side of the family, every single one of my, my dad, my, all my uncles, my grandparents, you know, um, my, my granddad, all, all, everyone on that side of the family all served in the Navy. You know, my, my granddad, uh, if he had his ship was sunk by a kamikaze and if he hadn't swam to the Philippines, I wouldn't be here to have this conversation with you today. And I totally agree. You know, it's some, something about having seen firsthand the horrors of war and understanding that above all, you do not want to repeat them, especially unnecessarily. That is a a an aspect of the conversation that's totally missing. For so many of the people in Congress, this is war is an abstraction. It's something fun. It's something you send the little people off to do. And unfortunately, the little people are people like my family members, people like my friends, the people who do not have, you know, huge cable news shows, uh, all of them with the exception, obviously, of Tucker Carlson, as we just mentioned, all of whom are hand making you know, money hand over fist off of these wars and all of whom are just happy to send these guys off to die. Um, you know, we're really at, at a point in history when it's, to me, our enemies are not in Moscow, right? Our enemies are here in D.C. Our enemies are in New York. Our enemies are these guys at Raytheon, at Lockheed Martin, who are just profiting in a ridiculous way off of death 
And it's going to take unity between guys like you and me to get over this and end finally and bring up some peace for once and for all to this situation in Ukraine. Amen, comrade. Let me say that. And uh, why read Brave Correspondent for Sputnik? Thanks again for a great, another great appearance. That's why read everyone. Let's take a short break and we'll be back on the backstory. backstory, the show that brings you the truth behind the news, sometimes the unspeakable truth behind the news. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. There we go, Rod. So great opening and great interview with Y. Reed. Thanks so much for Y. Reed for joining us. Great conversation. And coming up this hour, we're joined by Ted Rawl great friend of the show, author, artist, and bon vivant, Ted Rawl. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. So, yeah, Command Central, I need to reboot my computer here. So it won't affect the audio, but I, that's what's going on with video. So... Rod, what did you think of the uh, A, JFK speech, which I know you've heard before, but also the interview with Wyatt? What do you think, Rod? I think both were strongly, and I think both were needed. Uh, you know, Wyatt talked about how he, you know, or just, you know, he ended off talking about uh, Tucker Carlson, how he didn't like Tucker Carlson five years ago, and, you know, his thoughts of the squad and how he gave them chances and, and things like that. And it just, you know, I've already came to some of these conclusions already years ago because I, I just sometimes have a a gift for forecasting things. You know, not not necessarily good things that happen, but um, so I guess maybe it's a curse. But uh, you know, and we do need to unite. You know, like he said, he considered himself a socialist, and it doesn't really matter about you know political affiliations or ideologies. But you know, we need we need, we have to like you know capital H A. H-A-V-E, uh, we have to unite to, uh, to to stop this because it's out of control. And then, you know, it's only the audio, but you got to see the video of all these people. It's only two, it's only like two uh, protesters. And so it's a white guy at the end. And it, like at first you can hear it's a black man. And that was the funny part to me, not funny and like, you know, a laughing, but just in a sick way, is that another black man tells another black, like, no, 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 this is, this is for black and brown people. And he's like, I, I am a black and brown. <laughs> so it's like they use the the victim of like no 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 you know they try to use a victim and he's like but he doesn't even see that he's talking to another black man you know what I'm saying Lee so it's just like we're at a we're at a sick spot in uh, uh, American history and world history and it's just like we need we need to uh, fight back. Well, Kennedy, one of the things he said is this is not a debate where we're piling up debating points, and that is an example of I think lending your arguments. Your rhetorical arguments over overtake what's right in front of your face. Do you see what I'm saying, Rod? Yeah, hundred percent. It's not really time to debate certain things. Like, like, like Wyatt said, he's like, look, you know, he has a certain stance on immigration, but he's like, I can look past that to just stop this uh, annihilation that we're going to face with a nuclear war again. You know, and uh, JFK said it. 
um, you know, we would have a wasteland. So even if you do survive this, there's not going to be any food. There's not going to be any plants. There's not going to be any vegetables. You know, uh, you're going to be lucky if you even find uh, worms and, cr- and crickets like like they've been trying to push on us now. Now, let's go to calls. 202-521-1320. Tarif, what's on your mind? Thank you for taking my call, Lee. How you doing, Rod? I have five um, comments I have to make. Um, here I go. First, I'd like to say free June signs. All right. First, okay, the first comment, for what I understand, there's 25 days left in a few of these, a few left in the United States. If that runs out, it's going to be hard for the 18 wheelers to deliver. Um, second comment, um, drones, it was this, uh, Pepper Escobar came out with an article saying drones were discovered, one drone was discovered, uh, exploded with plastic explosives attached to it by the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That's why Nord Stream 2 wasn't really damaged. It was discovered. But um, it's keeping it top secret because they don't want to show what the drone came from, the uh, Swedish government or Finland, whatever. We're doing an investigation. Third comment, in the Arabian Sea, Colonel Black said that um, they had an auto came out saying that Ohio sub, they carry nuclear weapons, surface in the Arabian Sea. It was designed to, dis, uh, to demonstrate to Russia that the U.S. is ready to, you know, go toe-to-toe with them in a nuclear conflict. Because that's because Ohio subs, nuclear-carrying tip missile subs, they don't really surface like that. They, they stay in, in the water silent. My fourth comment, Russia's carrying um, nuclear drills today. With on uh, different type of cruise missiles and um, IBM missiles, showing the NATO that they're ready for, you know, war. If Russia if Russia attack with nuclear weapons, Russia will respond with nuclear weapons. And my last comment is this: when that, if a dirty bomb in the nuclear use in Ukraine, of course it's going to be blamed on Russia, which we already know that. Now, if it's used in Ukraine, what Colonel Douglas McGregor said. When he was talking to um um uh, George Napolitano, that Biden might declare nuclear excuse me Biden might declare martial law in the United States. So this going to be right around from this time all the way to November the eighth. If we declare nuke um uh, martial law, then that's going to affect the elections. They might cancel them or they might do something with them. I don't know. So that's my five comments. Thank y'all for taking my call. Thanks, Trey. Great call as usual. Command Central, who do we have on next? Okay, going to Thomas. You're on the backstory. Hey, how you doing? Um, this is a very interesting show, but I'm trying to keep my comments to a minimum, like the prior caller. And I have, I think, three points. The first is I don't really believe that the U.S., Russia or China want to do a nuclear war or intend to do a nuclear war. I think the U.S. is extremely provocative, dangerously provocative, and exceedingly evil, and will falsely accuse other nations of intending to do nuclear war. And and quite frankly, I think any nation that's willing to go to war will falsely accuse and maybe even rightly accuse another nation that's its enemy so as to get its nation and its allies riled up against the enemy. So the U.S. is certainly of that ilk. Number two, um, when we talk about, um, oh, I want to get something per- 
perfectly clear. I'm totally against this U.S.-sponsored warmongering in, UK- in Ukraine. They've been manipulating in Ukraine since the since the early t- um, since, since since the mid. Since, since about 2012-ish, I was I was always curious when it first came up after the the Russian supported um, candidate won re, won re-election in Ukraine. How all of a sudden there were mass protests in Kiev, and that the U.S. government and the European Union were so deeply concerned about it and was reporting about it. And I just kept wondering, what in the world does the U.S. and the European Union have to do with Ukraine other than following up on President Bush's effort earlier to set up nuclear deterrent or um, 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 a nuclear shield as close to the Russian border as possible? So I've been totally against that. So I just want to get that clear. But, um, sir, when you referred, when you played that Kennedy speech, you did, you did a few things. Kennedy was an extraordinarily talented speaker, but he was a racist hypocrite. He was a hypocrite when he said that the U.S. didn't and would not start a war, especially since the year before he started the war in Cuba with the Bay of Pigs invasion. And he, he Let me stop you right there, because I don't like people lying. Kennedy did not... Kennedy actually did not... The CIA started a war in the Bay of Pigs. They had the plan, and they presented it to Kennedy. Kennedy went along with that. However, when they... When he realized he'd been fooled by the CIA, he's the one who did not call in the strikes. And the CIA resented him for that and then later killed him. So saying that Kennedy went in on the Bay of Pigs, he was fooled. And undoubtedly, if you listen to JFK's prior speeches, he was more on the Cuba issue. But after this speech, and do you accept the possibility, Thomas, that people can change? Do you accept that possibility? Do human beings ever change in your opinion? Do people change? What does that have to do with Kennedy? He went to the grave as a warmongering U.S. No, 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 no. Did you just hear the speech four months before he died? Did what? you hear that speech? Did you, you, you with your own eyes heard the speech? You call him a warmonger. Furthermore, after that speech, he got he unilaterally stopped nuclear testing and passed it through Congress and got it through Congress. So what does change have to do with Kennedy? Everything. And if you're going to refuse to accept reality, the reality is Kennedy did not go to his grave a warmonger. Kennedy went to his grave as an advocate of peace. A hundred percent. You just heard it. But the Vietnam War was going on when he was president. No, no, it wasn't. No, it, no, it was not. First off, when, when Kennedy, look at when the Vietnam War escalated. And also, look at the agreements and look at what Kennedy was doing when he was killed. Kennedy was making moves to de-escalate Vietnam and take American troops out. That's on the record. That's factual. The U.S. was at war with Vietnam as soon as the French were defeated? And it might not have been as large-scale as it became under Johnson, but it was at 
Okay. It was a war. So the fact that he was killed and then it was escalated means nothing to you. If you're going to attack Kennedy and lie about him, I do not like that. And I don't appreciate it. You lying about him does not help you. It doesn't help you. Don't you see it's in not in your best interest to lie about the person who, in fact, was promoting peace. And he was not just talking. As I say, he unilaterally stopped the uh, nuclear testing and passed that through Congress. That happened. Then they killed him. That's a good way to stop someone from changing. Ms. Kennedy said about Martin Luther King that all he was was trouble to her husband's administration. Now, you want to talk about Kennedy promoting peace. He was a president of the United States. Play, play, play that tape for me. So first off, play that tape for me. J- JFK was a fierce advocate for civil rights. 100%. Or, or how did it – some way wave a wand? Did I miss that part where Gandalf made uh, civil rights? Is killing thousands of people in an administration at the least. Kennedy was a warmongering fascist as far as I'm concerned. Okay, okay, you're done. You're done. I'm not going to sit here and let you lie about JFK. And if you don't accept the possibility that he was changing, and it's obvious that he was changing, Rod – do you understand why I'm freaking out a little bit? Because how can someone hear that speech and then call Kennedy a warmonger? Okay, so Martin Luther King, I'll say he was a warmonger. I'll, I'll pick anyone you want. Jesus Christ, warmonger. Jesus Christ was a warmonger. How can you sit there and listen? This is how people remain stupid and ignorant about the peace process. Do you understand why I'm freaking out a little bit, Rod? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying, Lee. I, you know how you feel. Uh, you know, I would, I would uh, uh, tell Thomas, or not tell him, but uh, you know, suggest to him to watch uh, Oliver Stone's recent uh, uh, G- JFK revisited. And you know, he's also come to that conclusion as well that that's why they killed Kennedy because because he wanted to you know bring peace. Uh, that's the biggest thing. So if you know if you affirm him as a warmongering, maybe yeah, of course he fell into the trap of the CIA. Uh, you know, I read the Devil's Chessboard. It's you know the Dulles brothers. Uh, you know, tricked him into that. And uh, how they got back to back at him for stopping the uh, the full on strikes is you know they you know they blew his head off you know uh, uh, it was onto his wife's dress so you know uh, you know what what would be the reason to to kill him if he's a, if he's a warmonger you know that's why Biden is praised because he's a he's a super warmonger and what you dealing also line in that Kennedy talked about people dealing with the world as it is. The world as it is, not a fantasy. You can, you can wish that a total pacifist gets elected president, but in my opinion, it's never happened. Has there been one pacifist who's elected president? But I think people can change, and Kennedy clearly was changing. And I don't understand how someone can listen to Kennedy's speech and see his actions as well, because his actions were that of a person. The Cuban Missile Crisis changed JFK. I think coming to the brink of war, and it doesn't change everybody. Joe Biden's going through this now. I'm seeing no change in Biden. Are you seeing any change, Rod? No, absolutely, absolutely not, Lee. He does that stupid grin at the camera to make it seem like he's—I don't know, man. I think he thinks—I think he thinks he's 
he's good looking or something. So, you know, get his photo shot. But this is at the same time he's talking about, you know, supporting all this money to these, like he, like these protesters said, these Nazis in Ukraine. And so, no, he's not changing. He's 1,000% all in for Ukraine. He'll never change. And there's a phrase, the enemy of the good is the perfect. If your standard is well, someone can never have been in favor of war, because if someone's in favor of war, they're kind of a warmonger by definition. If the standard you're using is they can never have done anything. And so no matter what change, they killed Kennedy. Do you understand that, Thomas? The CIA killed Kennedy. And here you are taking the position of his assassins. Thomas, shame on you. Shame on you. And I'm going to say that because I, I, I want you to think about it. Who are you advocating for? What position are you really advocating for? How does that help the cause of peace? And so I'm adamant on it because the stakes are so high. But maybe I'm overreacting. I'm open to that. Owl killer. Let's go to him. 202-521-1320. Owl killer. Talk me down. I wish you would play his secret society speech. You know, he did come in at the... So, like, when you really think about the time, so... Before he comes into office, um, Eisenhower gives his military-industrial complex speech. And I can read body language. Eisenhower was spooked when he was talking, and that's why he waited to the end to give that speech. And I believe Kennedy came, you know, Kennedy came up at, you know, from a family where he wasn't even the one that the family wanted to um, be president. It was his other brother. Um, yes, yeah, that's true. So he kind of got launched into it. Like he kind of got into the position that he was in. And obviously, you know, when you grow up in, in an aristocrat family, you know, when you're not really exposed to things, you, you may not be the person that you're going to be as you move forward. Like I think Trump grew in a sense. Like I, I don't think he necessarily believed what he was saying, but he, became, you know, I, I, think he he feels like he's tied in with the people now because they're after him and you know I, I think he feels more like he's with the people it's almost in the in the Kennedy sense but going back to Kennedy he you got to think about the situation that he was thrown into you know what yes he did the Soviet Union off of um outside of Cuba but do people know that he made the deal to take the missiles out of Turkey so he definitely was no warmonger because the 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 um, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the perfect time if you were going to be a warmonger to to you know st- to engage in a war. And yeah, like you said, he got tricked into uh, the Bay of Pigs, and when he realized he was being lied to, um, he you know he did not uh, provide the air support. But let's go to Operation Northwoods, which I know you know about. You were talking about it with uh, Jason Goodman the other day, and indeed, by the way, that that thousand page. Uh, summary of um tragedy and hope because i read tragedy and hope from start to finish and it's just too much information that was the perfect summary for somebody to that wants to understand um the angle of you mean the joe Plummer book at, at tragedy and hope info yeah. that i recommended that's the perfect thing for somebody that just needs to get a crash course um i agree when you and even people like us who've read Tragedy and Hope, it's a good summary, right? 
Absolutely. It gets everything, everything that takes the 1,300 pages, it, it gets you what you need to know. Uh, like, it, it hits the main points. You know, a lot of, a lot of the book is just like this um, love affair with the, you know, with the Anglo-American, or the, the pretty much it, it's a love affair with the Anglo-establishment. That's what it is, because that's what Quigley was. So, so Al Killer, you agree with me, and part of why I started to freak out and get very upset was when he tried to blame Thomas, tried to blame the Bay of Pigs on Kennedy. Uh, that's that's insane. Now, you know, because you know that history, Al Killer. That was a CIA operation. It was not Kennedy's idea. He was talked into it, but when he realized what he was being talked into, Kennedy backed off. Am I correct? That's what mm. the facts prove. I'm having trouble hearing you. So, do you agree that's what the facts show, Al Killer? Absolutely. But I I think the the real answer, like the the of that he was no war martyr was he had the opportunity to make to make good on the CIA's uh, mission to go into Cuba and he said no to Operation Northwood and he fired the Joint Chiefs of Staff and he fired Aaron Dulles. Yes, and furthermore, the the CIA had multiple assassination plots going against Castro and Kennedy opposed all of those plots. Right? Yes. I, yes, he did. And one other point I wanted to make. The governor of Texas, when he was assassinated, was riding in the car with him. Um, his name was John Connolly. And yes. Gerald, Gerald Salenti, um, he, uh, Connolly was shot in the, was shot as well, and he almost died. Had he not been hunched over, um, he, he would have bled out. Um, he had a, a gunshot wound to the lung. And he ended up dying in 93 from a pulmonary disease related to that. Well, he told Gerald Salenti, who's a frequent guest on Alex Jones, he read his book, um, Trench 2000s, in the 90s, and he said it's a great book. And that, that, Gerald Salenti predicted literally Ross Perot running for office in 1989, somebody like a Ross Perot that would break the status quo. And Connolly told him, great book, but you don't, have a you, you don't have a clue about what's really going on, because if the American people knew what was really going on in this country, there would be a revolution uh, by morning. So it... And that's great, great point, Al Keller. So we got to go because Ingrid's online. But great call as usual, Al Keller. And again, Thomas, I urge you to call back sometime. And uh, you know, I I don't like, but for for you to when I heard you blaming JFK for the bad pigs, you know, I'm a, I'm in favor of free speech, but I'm also in favor of truth, and. So I don't don't want to cut you off before you get to say what you said. But after you say what you said and you're defending the CIA, I, I, I don't want to say the facts are not with you. So 202-521-1320. Ingrid, what's on your mind? Well, that was a great appearance by Wyatt. And two things I want to uh, reiterate that he said that Ukraine is the most important issue of the decade. And um, I'm sorry for people who were not following this in real time because it's harder now to see what was going on in, in 2013, 2014. But the other thing that Wyatt said was um, you, you have to make some sort of triage, you know, what's really important to you. He's not going to agree with Tucker on everything. 
but what's the what's the most important thing and can we make alliances with people on what's really important at the moment now those people who confronted uh in Massachusetts Elizabeth Warren I wonder who they were and if they were part of the same um group that also confronted AOC uh, or if this is just uh building among different different sectors but the the great thing about this is that they got this out into the real public it it's one thing to call in here to these Sputnik shows which is kind of a safe space if you're on the fringe to go out into, and the other morning on C-SPAN, C-SPAN every morning from 7 to 10 has a call-in radio show, which is a little bit limited because they'll have a guest and they'll want the callers to direct their questions to the guests. They also do have an open, you know, an open line sometimes for whatever's on your mind. Someone called in the other day and, and talked about Ukraine and about 2014 and about and NATO and all the things we talk about here, the the woman host, the C-SPAN host, was tried to, she she acted like she didn't know where this came from, and she asked the caller, where did you get this? She was trying to imply that this was Russian propaganda. But you can, you know, you can quote American professors like Mearsheimer and now Jeffrey Sachs, speaking of someone who has uh, cha- changed over time. Because when he was part of the uh, going into Russia in the 90s, the, the economic uh, change there, he was really on the wrong team. But now he's come out publicly, very publicly, and, and talked about how we've taken advantage of Russia and uh, moved against Russia. So I encourage your listeners to, get, to go, if they're up in the, in the morning, and call into C-SPAN and put this before a much, much wider and, and not necessarily friendly audience. Yes. Yeah, you say friendly, although some callers occasionally get yelled at by the host here in Sputnik, as I did with Thomas. And so, so do you understand at all, Ingrid, why I was a little freaked out when he's blaming Kennedy and not the CIA for the Bay of Pigs? Uh, and... Uh, I, admittedly, I lost my cool, so you, you don't have to defend that. But I do take this very seriously. Does that make sense, Ingrid? Yes, I, I didn't really care for his his line of attack. No. Yes, but again, I want to point out that I'm in favor of free speech. So I hope he thinks about he he doesn't have to, but I hope he thinks about what we said and uh, calls back. So now we got to go. Great call, Ingrid. Now it's time to go to a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by the great Ted Rawl on The Backstory. And this is a backstory on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Joining us now, a great friend of the show, cartoonist, author, and Bobby Vaughn, 
Ted Rawl. Hey, Ted, how you doing? I'm, 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 I'm vivant bon. How are you? Wait, what does that mean? Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm being, I'm bon vivant as much as possible. Okay. Is, is that an actual French phrase? Because no habla, uh, Espan France. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't really say it. Uh, no, I mean, bon vivant is a real phrase, but, uh, you know, being, but you would not say it the way I said it. Yeah. So I don't know if you heard. We played the entire John F. Kennedy peace speech at the beginning of the show. Have you had a chance to listen to that given lately? No, I have not. So it's it's eerie right now because we're at a point where a lot of people are. Are you at all tense about nuclear war? Now you're you're in New York, where apparently there's public warning signs preparing people for nuclear war. So are be honest, Ted. Are you a little freaked out about that? A lot of people I know are. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, these are the these are the worst nuclear tensions of my lifetime. I'm. 59 years old. Uh, It's never been this bad before. No question. And uh, there's a lot of things that are, uh, if you get a chance, I would really recommend the peace speech right now. Because among the things Kennedy talks about is we, we shouldn't demonize Russia because of their ideology. As I think you know, Ted Kennedy was no advocate for communism, was he? No, no. John F. Kennedy was extremely, uh, he was extremely virulently anti-communist. If you read the texts of his comments to that effect, it's almost shocking. It's uh, how aggressively anti-communist he was. No, I I agree. But that comes through in the peace speech. He says, we hope Russia changes its ideology. And that is the kind of thing I can deal with. You know, someone's saying, we hope that they change. But Kennedy, and and I think it's almost naive sounding when he says things like the U.S. would never start a war. But I believe that was true in 1963 when he said it. And there, there are some disagreements about that. Smedley Butler might disagree. But it was largely true. The U.S. was not, you know, when when the CIA approached Kennedy about assassinating Castro, he was horrified by the idea that the U.S. would assassinate anyone. But today, it's fairly commonplace. Is, isn't that right, Ted? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a b- brief respite when uh, Ronald Reagan signed Executive Order 12333, uh, prohibiting uh, all political assassinations. And to my knowledge, that executive order has never been rescinded. And yet, uh, the United States obviously has engaged in numerous political assassinations. There was the general, the Iranian general, uh, there's Osama bin Laden, uh, there were many attempts to uh, bomb Saddam Hussein. Um, so, uh, you know, they, there was, I would say that the United States participated in the assassination of Gaddafi. It goes on and on and on. Um, so, yeah. As well as the, the assassination of JFK, it's pretty obvious to me. And it's pretty obvious to me why Kennedy was killed after that peace speech. Also, and I want to reiterate a point that I made on that. He wasn't just talking about peace. He 
unilaterally stopped nuclear testing at a time. Now, do you see anybody advocating for peace in general, not just specifically, we want peace in this war, war or that war, but for general, I don't see anybody. And I think someone like Tulsi Gabbard could come out and make that her central issue. The other thing that occurs to me on listening to Kennedy's speech is we've lost. Would you agree or would you disagree too strenuously that the existence of nuclear weapons deserves to be the number one issue for every politician? That it is, is in fact, the most important issue because of the destructive capability of those weapons. Ted? Well, those weapons should be internationally prohibited and destroyed um, by international treaty. I disagree that it should be the number one priority, which I think it should be the number two priority after climate change, uh, which, you know, nuclear war would not kill every hum everyone on Earth, but climate change could kill everyone on Earth. So <clears throat> I I'm very desperately concerned about that. But that's a nitpick. Um, you know, nuclear war is a is a is a really tremendous, huge threat. The United States reserves the right to launch a nuclear first strike um, against other countries, including Russia. Uh, you know, I mean, we should not have that policy. Um, we should encourage all nuclear powers to forswear uh, a first strike. That would be the first step, I think, towards disarmament. Now, uh, uh, so did you happen to, let's turn to, you know, less lofty topics for a second, like the debate last night between Lee Zeldin and uh, the governor of New York. I forget her first name, but... Uh, Kathy. What's her... Ka Kathy... Kathy, Kathy Hochul. Yes, that's right. Good guess, Ted. But... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Did you watch that debate by any chance? I, 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 yeah, I, I caught up with it today during the day. I, uh, I, I didn't watch it in real time. And so were you impressed? Well, um, you know, I, I hate Lee Zeldin. Um, he was my local congressman. He's a, I, I, you know, he's a rabid right winger. Um, I thought he did a really good job. Uh, I thought he was, he, he, he really out, he, he really, uh, outperformed my expectations. Um, Governor Hochul, Hochul was, uh, disappointing. And I think she kind of uh, underestimated him and, and, and played into his hands. And what issue do you think is going to end up hurting her most? Because I actually think we recently had a decision by a judge to reinstate workers who were let go because they had not been vaccinated. Right, Ted? That's correct. Now, what did you think of that decision? Um, I'm I'm all favor. I don't think any. I don't believe in vaccine mandates. Um, you're, you know, I believe in the vaccine. I just got my my booster. Um, I've had six of these shots total. So you know, I'm not an anti-vaxer, uh, but I don't think uh, anyone should be forcibly vaccinated for any reason whatsoever. I just think it's a violation of basic individual human rights to force or coerce people. And you know, when you're depriving someone of their livelihood. That's severe coercion. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I agree with that decision. We had a clip of uh, Kathy Hochul uh, defending Alan, Alvin Bragg, the DA from Manhattan. Uh, before the clip, I uh, want to play this clip. What, what is your thoughts on uh, Alvin Bragg, you know, since he's been DA? 
Um, you know, I think the, uh, I think that, frankly, the idea of, uh, you know, no, like no cash bail and everything is a really good idea. Um, I don't think that uh, we need to, I mean, I think that, I think that the messaging around this issue uh, has not been done well, and uh, it hasn't really been pointed out that, you know, there are people who literally uh, were dying behind bars over, like, in one case, I think a guy had a $5 bail that he couldn't make, and he died at Rikers Island. Um, you know, I mean, cash, cash bail is, you know, a violation of basic human rights. I mean, in the United States, you have the presumption of innocence until you've been proven guilty in a court of law, unless a judge can, uh, you know, can determine, determines that you would credibly represent a physical threat to the community um, and that you would cause harm to uh, citizens, uh, you know, walking around in the street if you were released, uh, there should be a strong presumption that you will be released pending trial. Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting point. Uh, it's a it's a hot topic. Uh, talking about bail, it's very complicated as well. Uh, you know, surrounding cash bail, it's a topic that's around the country. That's uh, like you said. Uh, it's um, you know, uh, you know, obviously a lot of poor people some sometimes end up in going through the legal system. You know, obviously now we have a lot of drugs flooding the street, a lot of people of uh, mental mental problems. So it's a convoluted uh, problem, and it's just you know, people don't have money and then they end up in jail. And so, Ted, let's hear that clip from Kathy Hochul from last night's debate. Let's hear that clip, please. Hit it. Zeldin, you have vowed to remove the district attorney of the county where we're in right now, Alvin Bragg of Manhattan, on day one, if elected as governor. Uh, of course, he is an elected official, and the state constitution specifies that removing a DA is not simple and is not automatic. Removal requires specific charges of wrongdoing, not just a difference of opinion, and the official in question must have a chance to defend themselves formally. What specific conduct are you alleging the district has engaged in, uh, the district attorney has engaged in? Absolutely. The first thing I'll do right after I'm sworn in office is turning the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg to let him know that he's being removed. And it's from day one that he was a district attorney. He said that he was not going to enforce all different kinds of laws across the board. Others he treat as lesser offenses. Look what happened to Jose Alba. He gets attacked. He's defending himself. Alvin Bragg sends him to Rikers Island, slaps him with a murder charge. He had an open stab wound. Alvin Bragg asks for hundreds of thousands of dollars in bail in this case, but doesn't go after the person who stabbed Jose Alba. We reached the point where Jose Alba said that he needed to go back to the Dominican Republic because he didn't feel safe here. Alvin Bragg is not doing his job. The message will absolutely be sent that if you're the DA, it stands for district attorney, not defense attorney. Alvin Bragg can go be a defense attorney, but if he's not going to do his job, I'm going to do my job and I'm going to remove him as soon as I can. Did you want to respond? I'd be happy to. I'm not surprised because in Lee Zeldin's world, you overturn elections you don't agree with. You can't throw out someone who is duly elected. Yes, I've worked with all of our district attorneys and given them more power to do their jobs. But for someone who voted to overturn a presidential election, I'm not surprised. He just thinks whenever he wants to do something, he can just you know, undo the will of the people. That's not the democracy we live in, but it's the world that Lee Zeldin does. 
Now listen, you're a New York voter out there. You're worried about security on our streets and our subways. A question gets posed about a Manhattan DA who refuses to enforce the law, and all that my opponent can come up with is talking about the last election. Think about that. Now, we don't have recall elections in this state, but when they crafted the New York State Constitution, they gave the governor the authority to remove a district attorney when they refuse to enforce the law. And I'm going to do what is not just my constitutional authority, but my constitutional duty to keep the people of this city, of this state, safe. Now, Ted, how big I'm seeing all kinds of polls that crime is a big issue for voters. And I've got to say, Zeldin did a much stronger job. If I were a New York voter, I would not think Hochul is understanding my issues if she brings up January 6th. What did you think of that, Ted? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, you know, by the way, I want to say Zeldin's right completely on that uh, clip about what happened to Jose Alva. It was absolutely outrageous. And uh, New Yorkers of every political stripe who were aware of this story, because it wasn't covered outside, uh, you know, outside of the New York Post and the New York Daily News, um, were just outraged about it. It was disgusting. Um, you know, one interesting thing here is how New York State and New York City have become so conflated on the crime issue in this particular race. And it's really confusing, right? I mean, uh, the, the governor uh, all but claimed that she lives in New York City during this debate. Uh, she said that, you know, she, she walks the streets of New York. I'm like, what is she talking about? I mean, she's not from New York City. She, you know, she's in the state capital in Albany, three hours drive north of the city. Um, she's from western uh, New York from Buffalo, which is a probably about a 10 or 12 hour drive uh, when I'm driving and I have a lead foot uh, away from New York City. Um, so, you know, Zeldin is a Long Islander. He's more credibly sort of viewed as close to this issue. Uh, Hochul isn't part of it, isn't vested, doesn't get it, doesn't seem connected to it. She knows it's an issue, so she knows she has to respond to it. But she's not She's not on top of it, you know, and um, the thing is, there really, there are some solutions here that a Democrat could embrace that don't just involve beating up homeless people, right? I mean, it's finding them shelter. Uh, you know, it's about uh, using eminent domain to seize uh, properties that, are, you know, commercial and residential real estate that's being warehoused by greedy landlords uh, and seizing that uh, either temporarily or permanently to provide housing for the homeless. It's about uh, taxing Wall Street in order to provide uh, funding for the for more programs and social workers for the homeless. We know we need to get, uh, you know, deranged homeless people off the street and into treatment and uh, receiving proper care and shelter. Uh, that's that's priority number one. You know, then you're going to have fewer subway pushings and those kind of things going on. Uh, the city is just going to look better. They got to do something about all the empty storefronts that are still around after COVID, I would say that there should be a law that if real if commercial real estate goes vacant, uh, there's only a certain amount of time that that's allowed. Otherwise, the city will seize it. Um, you know, there's things that uh, that the governor could do, and uh, but she's not. There's a real failure of imagination uh, at, in you know at, at the state capitol as well as. Frankly, it, you know, at Gracie Mansion at the, uh, the the mayor's residence, Eric Adams. And do you know you you talked about deranged homeless people? Do you know who could help them determine who's deranged homeless people? 
homeless people. When I was at Berkeley years ago covering Occupy Wall Street, there was one camp, there was this, there were two camps in Berkeley. The Occupy Wall Street on the campus of the University of California at Berkeley on Sproul. That was one camp. And then in the city of Berkeley, it was a homeless camp, basically. And I talked to a homeless guy there. I interviewed him and he said, see that guy? And he pointed to a guy. He said, he's dangerous. They said, I'm homeless. I know who's nuts. Does that make sense, Ted? Oh, it makes it makes total sense. Although, you know, obviously we don't want to get into a world where individuals can uh, refer each other to be committed to asylums like we had in the 60s when a guy wanted to get rid of his wife, he could have her committed. Uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's true that like you want to be connected to the people at the grassroots because they know what's going on. In this case, homeless people know what's going on. Um, you know, I, I, I do, you know, I, I just want to say, you know, about this gubernatorial race, uh, it would be a stunning upset for Zeldin to prevail, but it, that, that definitely could occur. I mean, it's 13 days, the polls are moving in his direction. Um, you know, if he continues the momentum, he will win this thing. And anybody who's a Republican winning would be amazing, right? That's very true. I mean, you know, the last time there was a, you know, it wouldn't be that shocking if you had like a uh, George Pataki type Republican, uh, but those kind of Republicans don't really exist anymore. Um, but this is a, you know, Lee Zeldin is a zealot. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a right winger. He's a, he's a Trumpy. He's, you know, he, it, it's, it would be shocking. And how big a deal is January 6th, do you think, for voters, Ted? Well, I've seen the polls, and the polls confirm what I've always thought. Look, Lee, as you and I both know, American elections are always about the future. They're never about the past. And, you know, January 6th wasn't even two years ago, but still, it's America. That's the past. And two years ago might as well be the Middle Ages. No one cares. It's, it, it happened. It's done. You can say that we should care. Uh, but, you know, this isn't, we're not, we're not, we're not, this isn't Kosovo, where people are still fighting about a battle in 1389. We, you know, people have made up their minds about what happened and who is responsible and whether we should care. People are focused uh, you know, republic conservatives are focused on the economy, inflation, and the border crisis. Uh, you know, Democrats are also focused on the economy, but also on other issues. Do you think some people might also remember that from 2016 to 2020, Democrats spent four years saying that Trump wasn't elected fairly? They denied uh, that election. I, I, yeah, now they deny the denial, right? It's, uh, you know, like that didn't happen, uh, you know, and they say, well, Hillary Clinton conceded the election. Okay, yeah, she conceded, and then she took it back, and and her supporters took it back. And it's, that ranged from, like, well, you know, the, the Electoral College, as if Hillary Clinton had never heard of the Electoral College, or as if, the, you know, winning by Electoral College was cheating, um, which, you know, it, it's not. I, I'm against the Electoral College, but that's the rule. Um, and then, you know, Hillary Clinton out and out claimed that the, the mean Russians stole the election away from her and gave it to Donald Trump. And, you know, that just that didn't happen. Um, so, 
Yeah, no, that, that's totally true. Um, you know, not to mention the Democrats <laughs> impeached Trump twice. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. And you know the Republicans are going to turn around and spend next year impeaching Biden. No question about it. Now, we've also seen that in Georgia, for instance, Stacey Abrams is coming out. They, she directed about $25 million worth of business to a law firm owned by a friend of hers. And so Democrats are figuring out ways, in Georgia at least, to make a lot of money on the issue of election integrity and talking about democracy. Do you think that kind of billing by a law firm connected to Stacey Abrams sort of defeats their purpose in being lofty about democracy? Ted? Well, especially since Stacey Abrams' sole raison d'etre as a politician is the bloody shirt, right, that she was robbed uh, and that now she's running to set things right. When you're claiming that you were wronged, uh, you can't be cheating or finagling or being sleazy. But, you know, it's not, it's not, it's, it's certainly not helping her, right? I mean, Brian Kemp is leading her in the polls. I, I think she pretty much has no chance whatsoever in that race. Now, now, let's talk about another race. Down the road from you in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman is taking on Dr. Oz. And I've been saying for a while, I thought Dr. Oz was a weak candidate in many ways. He, you can, in an age when I think being on the side of working people is very important, including for Republicans, Dr. Oz is a wealthy celebrity. But uh, Fetterman, I think, has messed himself up. And I think the issue of his stroke is part of the way he's handled it. And he had a debate with Dr. Oz last night. And he needed to have closed captioning because apparently, and I don't understand this, my stroke, I hear fine, you know. I can understand everything you're saying, Ted, without a teleprompter. I have trouble talking sometimes. I have trouble getting the words out. And I think people would forgive that. But I'd say the teleprompter thing seems a little weird to a lot of people, even me. So do you have any take on John Fetterman, Ted Rawl? Yeah, well, as you know, um, you know a bit lot more about this than I do, Lee. But I, but from what I understand, uh, strokes are—they're always different, right? They they affect people differently. There's different kinds, but um, you know, I think it was incumbent. Um, I think it was very risky for for Fetterman to stay in the race after the stroke, and then he kind of, you know, he was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. He could either hide and play, and sort of, you know, roll Joe Biden in 2020 style. Or he could come out, and in the end, he came out just for this one debate. Um, and I think people, Pennsylvanians, and I just drove through Pennsylvania the entire length across Interstate 80 a couple of days ago, and you can just tell from the signs and the way people are engaging. Uh, you know, like even you walk into a rest stop and people are really staring at the TV. Uh, you know, whenever there's political coverage, they're really interested. They want to know if I think basically they would. They view Fetterman as one of their own, and they'd be inclined to vote for him, and he would have won. But they want, but but Pennsylvanians want to know that he's going to be able to handle the job as a U.S. senator. And 
I don't know that there's that that the, the the debate helped with that. I mean, you know, there was there's big questions like you know uh, if he's sitting in a Senate committee, for example, will they provide that closed captioning? Uh, you know, if he's uh, you know in the coat in the cloakroom uh, and it's just a one on one. How is he going to interact with fellow senators or uh, with aides? Um, you know, that's just, I mean, it's just sort of like you just sort of, I mean, I like him and, you know, I, I would vote for him if I were in Pennsylvania, except for this issue, which makes me, you know, I mean, it, it, U.S. Senate is a demanding job. And, uh, you know, the question is, it, has he recovered sufficiently to do it starting in January? And I, I don't think that answer is clear. He certainly, I don't think, has shown it. He's not demonstrated the way people would want to see, which is, you know, can he operate, like you say, in a normal way without a teleprompter? So, Ted, how bad is this going to be for Joe Biden? Because as Democrats are looking at losing the House, the Senate, and governorships all over the country, how much is this going to be put at Joe Biden's feet, do you think Joe Biden's gonna, how badly do you think politically he'll be hurt if the Democrats get the drubbing that seems like they're gonna get? Ted Rawl? His presidency is finished. Um, you know, he, he can't, he's not running for reelection despite what they claim. Uh, they, he's going to be impeached over the Hunter Biden stuff uh, and maybe over mental competency. Um, he's going there. He will have no ability to get anything through the House or the Senate. He'll be reduced to executive orders, which, you know, granted, you can do a few things. But does that really feel like a democracy? No. And then, uh, you know, in, in reality, the presidential election begins, uh, I would argue, uh, September, October of next year. So he has it's over. Uh, you know, everyone's just going to be moving past him. Uh, he, you know, I hope that he got everything done that he wanted to get done because there's not going to be anything else. So do you think, do you agree with me that people saying that the Democrats, I mean, sorry, the Republicans will not have the votes in the Senate to impeach Biden. But I say it won't come to that. What it's going to come down to is key Democrats are going to take Biden aside and say, you've got to step down. This is going to be too bad. Do you think that's what's going to happen, Ted? Yeah, I do, because there's serious stuff on the Hunter Biden laptop. And, uh, and, and you know, Biden doesn't have the stamina of like a Donald Trump or the mania to, to fight this. I agree with you. Uh, the House will vote to impeach. The Senate won't convict. But you're right. It won't come down to that. Uh, but the Democrats, their best, it's not a good play. Their best play is to let Biden resign and let Kamala Harris have a year to convince the American people that she's up to the presidency and let her run for, I mean, I don't know what you really, people call it re-election, but it wouldn't be re-election, but run for election uh, with, you know, sort of imagine a scenario like Bill Clinton resigns after Monica Gate, Al Gore gets to be a president for a year or two before uh, the election. I think, I think that would have helped him going up against W. Uh, and th I think that's that's going to be the calculus. There's no clear Democrat waiting in the wings. There's no farm team. Bernie's not running. He's too old. Elizabeth Warren's probably not running. So it's kind of like, you know, who else do they have? I mean, you know. And I'll say this. Kamala Harris could end up being this country's Liz Truss and figure that out. 
And we'll see what happens. Ted Rawl, great appearance, a great conversation, as always. Thank you for being on the show. R-A-L-L.com is Ted's website. Thanks to, to Wyatt Reed, and thanks to JFK, and thanks to all of you. We'll be back tomorrow with more on The Backstory. Thank you.